the nature, government, and function of the church, a reassessment. 2001, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England. Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. 4. The function of the church. The functions of the church are fivefold. 1. To teach and preach the word of God. 2. To administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. 3. To engage in corporate public praise, worship and prayer. 4. To care for those in need among the brethren and also, where necessary and appropriate, to provide outreach by means of caring in various forms, which is connected with one under missionary work, preach the gospel and heal the sick, Luke 9, 2. This is the diaconal function of the church. To maintain discipline among the members of the church in terms of faith, doctrine and morals, practice when they break down. In Ephesians 4, 11-12 we read, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the Church of Christ. We are told here that Christ has given to his church certain ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. These ministries are given for the equipping of the church, the saints, for the work of service that the body of Christ, the church in the widest sense, might be built up. Clearly, these ministries do not exist for themselves or their incumbents, but for a specific purpose, to equip the saints for service. The function of the church the body of Christ in the wider sense, therefore, is the work of service, and these ministries exist to prepare and equip the saints for their calling as servants of God. All that the ministry of the church does, as the ministry of the church, points to 1 and 5 above, is to be geared to equipping the saints for this service. It is important that we observe the order here. First comes the equipping of the saints for service, and then the building up of the church, the body of Christ, through that work of service. The building up of the church is the ultimate consequence of the ministry's work, but not the direct object of the ministry's work. It is not the primary task of the ministry of the church to build up the church, nor is it the primary task of the ministry to build up the institutional church and to make it such leads to ecclesiastical empire building, which is very often detrimental to the primary task of the ministry, namely the equipping of the saints, the church, for service. It is through the work of service that the church, including the institutional church, is built up. The building up of the church is not the purpose of the ministry, nor is it achieved directly through the work of the ministry. It is through the work of service engaged in by the whole congregation that the church is built up. The ministry's proper function is to make the work of service possible by training and equipping the saints for such service. It does not 
directly engage in it. Here we can see why it is important to unravel the knot that theologians such as John Murray have tied the church into. The church, that is the institutional church, for example, may not engage in direct political action since there is a separation of powers between the state and the church. Both are God-ordained institutions, but they are separate and may not be fused into one institution with power over both realms. But the church, through its ministry, must equip the saints, that is, the church in its widest sense as the body of Christ, for action and service in the political realm by teaching the biblical principles of civil government and civic responsibility set down in God's word. Life is inescapably political, just as it is inescapably ascetic, philosophical, economic, etc. Even when men refuse to become directly involved in politics or do not vote at political elections, their actions or lack of action have political consequences. Christians necessarily engage in political action whether or not they like it. And the church must teach the saints how to think and act obediently in the political realm, since in all that man does, he is to serve God in obedience to his revealed word, and it is the church's duty and function to proclaim and teach God's word. It is the calling of the church, the saints, to engage in the work of service in the world, to bring the Christian gospel to bear upon every institution in society and upon all men in all walks of life. Through this work of service in the world, by the saints, the church is built up. This service is the witness of the saints to the redeeming grace of God in all walks of life and and at all levels. It is the calling and function of the church that is, the institutional church, to equip the saints for this service. It is the calling of the church, the body of Christ, to engage in this service in the world. As it does so, the church, including the institutional church, will be built up. This is the correct order revealed in Scripture. It is the failure of the church to understand this order that has led to the irrelevance and impotence of the church in modern society. The church has become an end in itself and the ministry an end in itself. Its primary focus has been on building up the church on ecclesiastical empire building. By doing this, it has ceased to do what it should be doing, equipping the saints for service in the world. Instead, the church equips the saints only for, or rather manipulates them into, spending all their time and energy on church-related matters, church meetings, prayer groups, midweek Bible studies, etc. As a result, very little time and energy is put into service in the world. The result of this is that service the very thing that the church should be equipping and preparing the saints for, is abandoned, and instead 
the church is prioritized. Since it is the work of service that builds up the church, not the work of the ministry, the church has not been built up. Instead, it has declined. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a good example of someone who promoted this erroneous interpretation of Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. He taught that the ministry was given to equip the saints and to do the work of service and to build up the church. That is, that the ministry should do all three things, should do all three things. The church, in this interpretation, is reduced to the function of the ordained ministry. We may ask, if this interpretation is correct, what precisely are the saints to be equipped for? No doubt the answer would have to be more midweek meetings, prayer meetings, etc. In other words, the saints are not to do anything. God forbid! They are simply to sit in church and pray about it. That is, ask God to get someone else to do something. Yet Lloyd-Jones should have known that neither the Greek nor sound hermeneutics would sustain this pietistic interpretation of the text. It is vitally important that we understand the function of the body of Christ, not only at the local level as an institutional church, but in the widest sense as the people of God called to service in the world, that is, to bring the whole world under the dominion of Jesus Christ by proclaiming and applying his word to the whole of life. The ministry of the church is there to equip the people of God for this service, not simply to equip them to come to church and sing more hymns, pray more prayers, listen to more sermons, good as these things may be. Such a view of the ministry is at odds with scripture. The function of the church, the body of Christ, is not to attend church meetings, and spiritual maturity is not measured by how far someone has climbed up the greasy pole of the church bureaucracy. The spiritual person who is truly living out the faith is not the one who does nothing but go to prayer meetings and preaching meetings, but the one who is engaged in the work of service, bringing the gospel to bear upon the whole of life, at work, at home, economically, politically, socially, as well as in church, as well as in church. He is the one who goes to church to get equipped for action in the world, and then goes into action in the world, bringing the word of God to bear upon all he does. The primary function of the body of Christ on earth, therefore, is not focused on the church, but on the kingdom of God, and thus on the Christian life. A life lived out in service to God according to his word. It is only with such a focus that the Christian works for or serves, that is, worships God in the totality of his life and being, thereby bringing the whole of life into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 It is through this whole life service and the effect this has on man's culture that the kingdom of God is realised in history, not through more prayer meetings and midweek Bible studies, 
valuable and worthwhile, though these things may be. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation, we are told in Mark 16.15. Not go into church and hide from the world. Our purpose should not be primarily to get the world into the church, but rather, and this is certainly the purpose of the ministry according to Paul in Ephesians 4.12, to get the church into the world. Only then will the church be built up. Invert the order and the result is a ghetto church. Impotent and irrelevant, which is precisely what we now have in Britain. All five functions of the institutional church mentioned above have as their purpose the equipping of the saints for this work of service in the world. If that work of service is neglected, The church will not be built up because it is through that work of service that the church is built up. Instead, it will be ineffectual. Unfortunately, in modern Western societies, the churches have become so introverted and self-absorbed that the world, the arena of the Christian service, has been left, quite literally, to the devil. And he has, of course, taken over or at least is in the process of doing so, the church must stop pursuing ecclesiastical empire building and seek to build the kingdom of God instead through equipping the saints for action. What is that action, that work of service? It is what we mean by the term Christian Reconstruction. Christian reconstruction is not an added extra, an option for those socially minded or action-oriented Christians. It is the heart of the Christian's work of service and central to the Christian life of faith. We are here to work for God, to bring all things into obedience to his will. That is the work of Christian reconstruction. It is not an extra, but rather the function of the body of Christ on earth, and without it, without that work of service in the whole of our lives, the church will be in ruins and the body of Christ ineffective and powerless to influence society, precisely because it has denied such influence as essential to its reason for being. Without Christian reconstruction, therefore, the church will not be victorious. Without that work of service in the whole of our lives, the church will be in ruins. Of course, we may have one or two mega churches here and there where all the spiritual people get together to pray for the end, but the church as a vibrant, dynamic force for good and the church as one of the three main pillars of society, church, family and state, will be essentially lost. Mostly it will be, as it is today, under the heel of the humanist state, with one or two Protestant monasteries, little enclaves of spirituality, retreating from the battlefront. The church will only be built up again through the work of service, through Christian reconstruction. Building up good reformed churches will not lead to Christian reconstruction. Rather, 
Christian reconstruction will lead to the building up of the church. The idea has prevailed in some churches that if only we get the church worship service right, then the preaching thorough and the preaching thoroughly reformed all will go well in society. Or if only we got the liturgy correct, all the rest will fall into place. This is to put the cart before the horse. The Bible teaches that it is the work of service by the body of Christ in the world that leads to the building up of the church. When the clergy reverse this order, they take on a role and authority in the life of the believer that is beyond their spiritual mandate and jurisdiction, and the importance and authority of other institutions are accordingly diminished. For example, the importance of the family and the authority of the family head, who, as a result of this erroneous view of the function of the church, subjects himself and his family to ecclesiastical bondage. The church gets sidetracked from its proper purpose when it concentrates on the status, authority and function of the clergy and the church and the role of church government. Ecclesiomania, not service according to God's word, that is, working out the faith in all areas of life, becomes the predominant occupation of the believer, consuming all his free time and energy. I also believe that the end result of this perspective, of reversing this order given us in the Bible, and of neglecting the proper function of the church ministry and the work of the church as the body of Christ, is the sacred-secular divide, since everything that is not clergy or ecclesio-centred is viewed as second-class in the Christian's affections and life. There are a number of important points to be considered with regard to the work of service, which is the primary function of the church, the body of Christ. 1. It is to be outward-oriented. Its purpose is not primarily to get more people into church. It does not have as an ulterior motive enlarging church membership roles. Of course, this will be the result, but the spirit that sees service primarily in such terms is not the spirit of Christian service. The Christian faith is not centred primarily on the church, but on the kingdom of God, and thus on the Christian life. And the kingdom of God is necessarily wider than the church. The animating spirit of Christian service is outward, to go into all the world and preach the gospel by word and deed. The building of the kingdom of God on earth is the primary focus of Christian service. The Christian desires firstly that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 2. It must be positive in its orientation and life-affirming. I once heard a very pious Christian lady state that death is the most natural thing in the world. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know quite what this is, but it certainly is not Christianity. Christianity is about life and having life 
more abundantly. There is far too much talk of this kind among Christians. It is morbid and it does not affirm Christianity. Christianity is about life and strength and victory over sin and over the world. 1 John 5, 4. It is about victory over death, not escape into death. Death came through sin and Christ came to deliver us from sin. Death is a curse, not the most natural thing in the world. Death is the most unnatural thing in the world. It is the negation of God's purpose for man. God created life and saw that it was good, not death. Sin brought death and Christ died to deliver us from sin. Furthermore, too many ministries, both in the church and outside the church, in terms of evangelism, etc., are negative. They generate an attitude of fleeing from the world rather than the desire to conquer the world for Christ. We must flee from sin and from the devil and from the world in the sense that the world stands for these things. But we must not flee from the world in the sense of the earth and society. Why? Because Christ died to redeem it, and it is his inheritance. Psalm 2, 7-12 We are also told in Scripture that the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Psalm 115, 16 The world is Christ's inheritance, and as Christians we are co-heirs with him. The meek, we are told by Christ himself, will inherit what? Heaven? No, the earth. Matthew 5, 5. From the way some Christians talk, it seems they expect to inherit heaven. They will be sorely disappointed. It's all going to be down here in the nitty-gritty of physical life, so you had better get used to it down here, where, for mankind, life is lived. The earth, perfected of course, will be our home for eternity in the resurrection. Man can no more escape the physical nature of life than he can become divine. When physical life departs from man, he is dead. As Christians, we look to the resurrection from the dead, not to a disembodied existence, which the Bible calls death. We must seek to be positive and affect our culture for good, claim it for Christ and transform it by his word into heaven on earth, that is, into a culture in which God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We should not simply criticise humanism, but start providing alternatives to its culture of death. A Christian culture should be a culture of life in its fullest sense. 3. It must be comprehensive. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, Matthew 28, 18. He is Lord of all, and his word is to rule over all. There is no part of the created order 
it falls outside his authority, jurisdiction and power. There is, therefore, no aspect of created reality that is not in his plan for the restoration of all things. God has given Jesus Christ to the church, the body of Christ, as head over all things and put all things in subjection under his feet. Ephesians 1.22 His reign is total. The church's task, therefore, as Christ's body on earth, is also total. As Christians, we are to claim the whole earth for Christ because it is his inheritance and ours also as a result of adoption into the family of God through union with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17. To put it simply and biblically, the earth belongs to the Christians. It belongs to us because we belong to Christ and the earth belongs to him. We are co-heirs with Christ, adopted children of God. Christians must claim their inheritance. This doctrine of inheritance in Scripture is very important, both in material terms, inheritance from one generation to another, and in eschatological terms. It has not been given sufficient attention in the preaching and teaching of the Church. The Christian's inheritance is usually seen, if it is considered at all, as some kind of nebulous, ethereal place where the believer goes when he dies. Heaven, the Christian version of the pagan concept of the Elysian fields. Not so. The believer's inheritance is the earth. It is the kingdom. It is the kingdoms of this world that are to become the kingdoms of God and over which Christ will rule forever. Revelation 11.15 The earth is our inheritance, and Christ will return when he, through his body on earth, has fully come into the possession of it in history, not before. The church's calling in the world, therefore, must embrace every sphere of life and society. It must embrace the whole of man's culture. 4. The work of service must be thoroughly biblical in orientation and practice. This may seem obvious, but in light of much that is being done by Christians today in the name of Christianity, it needs to be reasserted. There are two problems that the church faces here, and it is important that the churches should understand these problems and deal with them appropriately and effectively. First, many do not believe that the Bible addresses all the issues that face the individual and society today. They do not have biblical answers to the problems these issues throw up. They do not even know there are biblical answers because the clergy, who are largely ignorant of these things themselves, do not teach the whole counsel of God. Most Christians, therefore, adopt by default the humanist answers they hear on the media and read about in the newspapers. We must reject this ignorance and rebuke it. We must seek always to understand the Bible and the principles it gives us for thinking about and living life obediently. 
This is difficult and laborious sometimes. Again, we must say that this is where the clergy, the professional ministers, fail so often. Even in Reformed churches, they do not do their job properly. They do not train and equip the body of Christ properly, comprehensively, and the work of service thus goes off half-cocked, if at all. This is because the clergy cannot be bothered so often to do their own homework. They are lazy shepherds. We need to be rigorously biblical in our approach to the work of service. This means that the ministry must be willing and able as a result of study and searching the scriptures, that is to say, as a result of ministers labouring hard at the work to which they have been called, 1 Timothy 5.17, to equip the saints with biblical answers to the problems that face the individual, church and society. Only then will the church be light and salt to the nation. Secondly, however, for many, the problem is much worse than mere ignorance. There are too many in the church, including, indeed especially, many clergymen who know that the Bible does address the issues that face the individual and society today. But despite their claims to be Christians, reformed men, etc., they refuse to accept the biblical teaching as valid or relevant. Like the Pharisees of the first century, they set aside the word of God for the traditions of men. Humanist traditions, the very traditions and practices that have brought the nation to its present state of ruin in the first place, such must be confronted with their sin and called to repentance. The answer to these people is not gentle talk and understanding because they are not merely misguided Christians and it is time to stop treating them as if they were. They are wolves in clerical garb. Matthew 7.15 They are enemies of the gospel and we need to wake up to that fact. The call to repentance is the only way to deal with such people, ministers included. And that means the call to obedience to God's word, including God's law. There are no legitimate excuses for antinomianism in thought or deed, whatever sly theological rationale is used to justify it. The only remedy, therefore, is repentance. The work of service must be thoroughly biblical if it is to be acceptable to God and in conformity with the works that he has prepared for us from the beginning, Ephesians 2.10. To sum up, the work of service must be outward-oriented, positive, comprehensive, and thoroughly biblical. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows 
or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.